How many of you this morning are familiar with the name Bruce Springsteen? Uh, he's a, if you don't know, he's a famous musician. Most of his songs over the years have been about the American working blue-collar class. One of his lesser-known songs is a, call, is a song that's called My Father's House. To make a long story short, it's a song that is about a son who has sinned against his father and waits and waits and waits and waits too long before he seeks reconciliation. It's really a haunting song about a man whose sins were very real. What he did was real. The damage to the relationship with his father was real. His stubbornness to wait so very long was real. But in the song, the singer confesses that he believes that any promise of redemption is just an illusion. Now, after Easter, typically here at the church, I start a series of messages that I jokingly re uh, refer to uh, as me trying to get fired series. Now, here we are seven years later. Apparently, I'm not doing a very good job. Now, last year, we did kind of skip this because we were in the midst of our pandemic. We wanted to focus more on kind of encouraging messages. Well, this year, I'm also going to do something a little bit different. I want to talk to you about a subject that doesn't normally come up in regular conversation. It's a subject that most people are not going to ask me to preach on, but one I think is quite necessary. It is the subject of heresy. Particularly, I want to talk to you about Jesus heresies. Now, a heresy, if you don't know, is a false teaching that has gained a following. So you have false teaching. A false teaching becomes a heresy when it gains an audience, essentially. All right? That means a heretic is someone who teaches something that has gained a following or him himself has gained a following. Now, I want to start this series with a heresy that is known as docetism. How many of you could spell that this morning? Docetism. The idea is that this is, well, let me put, roll back here. This is really just the first heresy that the church encountered after it was started in the book of Acts. It's a belief that Jesus was divine, but only appeared to be human. If you want a common way to refer to this, this is known as the Superman heresy. The idea being that Superman is, uh, appeared to be human. He leaped tall buildings. He was faster than a locomotive. And he did all of it while appearing human, but was Superman human? No, he was Kryptonian. He's an alien. And so that's the idea behind docetism, is that when Jesus healed the sick, when he cast out demons, when he raised the dead, he only looked human. He was God, but he only looked human. Well, this is an ancient heresy that is not around anymore, really kind of died in the second century. So why would I talk about it? Well, it really gives me an opportunity to introduce you to this series of messages and to see or introduce you to the idea of what kind of damage these kind of things can do, what kind of problems they bring about. Now, to talk about this ancient heresy, we come to 1 John chapter 1. Now, the big idea of 1 John is to know that you have eternal life. This book has, over the years, helped a lot of people who are struggling with whether or not they're a Christian. If you struggle, for example, knowing whether or not you are saved, this is the book for you. If you struggle with whether or not your sins have been forgiven, this is the book for you. 
If you struggle with whether or not God is working in your life or the Holy Spirit's changing you, this is the book for you. And every scholar, every biblical scholar agrees the first four verses of this book is John refuting some form of docetism. And what he does is what I want to do with these four verses, and he gives us a roadmap when it comes to dealing with heresy. And I want to follow that roadmap, and I want to show you how we're going to deal with these things through this series. So I have three points for you this morning. Number one. Number one, bad ideas about Jesus often arrive from social pressure. Bad ideas about Jesus often arrive from social pressure. John says here in the verse, that which or he was with the Father from the beginning. The idea that John is laying down is that Jesus existed with the Father at the beginning of human time. Back in the Gospel of John, he says it this way, that nothing exists that wasn't made without Jesus. He's making the argument that just like God the Father, just like the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has eternally existed. He even calls him the eternal life. He gives titles to Jesus that only belong to the divine. He is describing him as a creator, the one who is the judge. So his first argument out of the gate is that Jesus is God, fully and completely divine. But we note in the text, the second argument he gives us is that Jesus is fully human. And see how he makes his point. John says, we heard him with our ears. We saw him with our eyes. We touched him with our hands. We developed a friendship or relationship with him. Note the repeated use of the word manifest or revealed. He's saying, look, he was in the flesh. So he's saying, look, he was fully divine, but he's then saying he was fully human. He was, in fact, human. So right out at the beginning of his book, John wants to lay out the fact that Jesus has these two natures, fully divine, fully human. Now, the rest of the Bible confirms this truth. The Old Testament, for example, we have the promise of the arrival of someone who's going to be called the Almighty God the everlasting father. In the same book, though, we're told that this everlasting father, this person who's going to get that title, is also going to be wounded for our transgressions. Jesus will describe himself as the great I am, a title that is only reserved or only used by God in the Old Testament. But we see in the Gospels also that Jesus ate and he slept and he traveled on foot. In Romans, the Bible calls him the new Adam, And while it's called a mystery, the Bible again affirms and affirms that Jesus was fully divine and fully human. So why in a letter about eternal security would John open by talking about the two natures of Jesus? Because in his day when he was writing, the most popular accepted belief about the world was a thing called Platoic dualism. Based on the ideas or the philosophy of Plato, it was that the material and the spiritual were two different things. The spiritual was good, the material was bad, and they were not to interact with each other. And so the idea is, is that this... uh, Now, I know you didn't come to church this morning to hear about Platoic dualism. But the point is that docetism was an attempt to take 
Christianity and the popular philosophy of the day and try to figure out how to make it work. And John's trying to hammer home the reality that you have to have the full deity of Christ and you have to have the full humanity of Christ or else you lose Christianity. Let me maybe explain it this way. The sexual revolution in our country has brought with it a number of ideas, bad ideas about human sexuality. Ideas that do not fit with the Bible's definition of human sexuality. And as Christians, let's just be honest, since the, uh, the Oberfeld decision, it feels like more and more that you will be left out socially, you will be put on the margins socially, if you do not conform to these new ideas. And surprise, surprise, there is now a plethora of people trying to figure out how to take the most popular worldview today and match it with Christianity. I'll give you an example. One of the things that we're hearing more and more lately is that consent is the standard. Let me put it this way. There are two consenting adults, therefore we can't judge. And so now all forms of physical intimacy are okay as long as it's possible to get consent. And lo and behold, we find out that nothing is off the table. The problem, well, let me maybe say it this way. Does physical intimacy need consent? Absolutely. The Bible is very clear. If there is no consent to physical intimacy, it is always sinful. But is consent the standard? This is an easy one, class. No. God's standard is the standard. So while there must be consent, it must, be, it must also fit within God's design for human sexuality. This is what I mean. What was going on in John's time was this was the popular view of the world, and there were those out there trying to make it fit with Christianity, just like a number of things are happening today. So, for example, we get ideas that are socially popular, things like critical race theory or things like socialism, and we go, wait a minute, those things can't fully conform to Christianity. And we must understand as we go through this series that more often than not, I'm going to stand up here and I'm going to tell you these bad ideas about Jesus came because of some form of social pressure. But then I'll give you number two this morning. Bad ideas about Jesus will rob the Christian of joy. Bad ideas about Jesus rob the Christian of joy. Look at verse 4. He says, And these things we write unto you, that your joy may be full. John then says, Look, the two natures of Jesus, understanding what they are, are tied directly to the joy of the Christian life. John's writing here, for example, with Genesis in mind. We know the story, right? God makes Adam and Eve, and it gives them a a place, provides for them this garden paradise. The enemy comes along, he lies to them, they sin, fellowship with God is broken, and they're removed from the garden paradise. And all of redemptive history from that moment is about getting back to that fellowship with God. That was what the nation of Israel was about. 
That's what the promised land was about. That was what the temple was about. That's what the kings of Israel were about. It was all about trying to get back to fellowship with God. Yet Israel failed. The promised land not fully conquered. The priests defile the temple. The kings don't seek the Lord. Nothing worked. John's saying here, Jesus, fully divine, fully human, lived the perfect, obedient life, volunteered to shed his own blood to return us with, to fellowship with God. And John's saying, it worked. Faith in Jesus restores the human fellowship with God. But then he also writes, knowing that the church is growing diverse. People are coming in and becoming Christians from all sorts of different backgrounds. And later in this book, he's going to talk about how Christians need to love one another. But here he establishes the fact that the loving fellowship that is shared among God's people is dependent on Jesus being fully divine and fully human. Because if he's not fully divine and fully human, he cannot restore our relationship with God. And there is no basis for our community. There's no basis for the self-sacrificing, humble, service, love that we are called to do to people that we may or may not get along with. So you lose the joy of of having access to the throne of grace. You lose the joy of having a family that is bound by something greater than genetic material. You lose the joy of future inheritance in Christ. You lose the idea that you have people who are going to share both your temporal and your eternal life. You begin, the, the joys of the Christian life begin to break down if the ideas about Jesus begin to break down. Now, docetism would lead to the popular idea that salvation was about obtaining secret knowledge. If you think about it this way, the popular idea was that the, the spiritual world was good, the material world was bad. And you overcame the material world by becoming the smartest person in the room. And what happened is this led to a group of men who would travel around and go to these churches and claim they had this secret knowledge. And if people followed them, paid a little bit of money, they too could be saved by this secret knowledge. And it would destroy the joy that Christians had. First of all, it took away what Jesus provided And replaced it with a works-based relationship. You'll notice in this entire series, all of these heresies will do it. All of them replace grace with work. Now, in this case, the work was knowledge. You had to know more. You had to keep learning. In in Galatians, uh, Paul says, look, you've been bewitched. You're a fool to chase after God through works. All this does, if you're going to chase after God through works, all it's going to do is make sure or call you and require you to be perfect. And when you fail, not only do you have to go back to being perfect, but you have to find some way to make up for being imperfect. And it leads to a Christianity that is exhausting. Everything is done with your relationship with God based on performance. What do you think happens to a Christian whose whole life is based on performance? The whole life needing to be perfect. How many of you are perfect this morning? But what have you heard week after week after week that the only way God was ever going to find you acceptable is if you were perfect? How long until you're frustrated? How long until you're embittered? 
How long until you're angry because his standards are so high and you don't think that he has done enough to deserve that kind of commitment? He's not blessed you enough for it. Or think about it this way, how divisive that becomes with other believers because what's going to happen is you're going to get a group of people or some people who are going to think or become arrogant enough to think that they, in fact, have made it. Or you're going to get a group of people that say, if you're not like us, there must be something wrong with you. And you begin to see the breakdown of the fellowship of the believers. So number two, bad ideas about Jesus will rob the Christian of joy. But then we come to number three. And perhaps the most important issue that comes with dealing with heresy. And that is this, that bad ideas about Jesus change the message of the gospel. Bad ideas about Jesus change the message of the gospel. I want you to note verses 2 and 3. He uses a repeated use of the word testify or declare. I declare this to you. We declare this to you so that you can have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with Jesus Christ. John is saying that the two natures of Jesus, that he's fully divine, fully human, is central to the, it is fundamental to the message that he and the other disciples have been preaching. In other words, he's saying this is central to the gospel. Now, from the very beginning of the church, the threat of changing the gospel was always there. For example, in the book of Acts, it records for us that a great number of the temple priests became believers. And then not long after that, an argument arose about whether or not people needed to be circumcised. In 1 Corinthians, the church thought that maybe Jesus rising from the dead was not a big deal, was not important to Christianity. There is, of course, we see in the New Testament, those who try to combine some form of Christianity with some form of Judaism. As we see here, there were those who were trying to bring Christianity into some sort of secular philosophy. And every single time in in the New Testament, these ideas are rejected because the moment you change these things is the moment you change the gospel. So here in the text, John makes it clear why the intact gospel is so important. What's his goal? What does he say in the text? The goal of him, his goal, and the goal of the other apostles is to share the message so that others may benefit. And the moment you change the message, then you lose the benefits. John wants every person he meets to know the wonderful joy of having sweet fellowship with God. He wants them to know about having eternal life. He wants them to know the unique and loving fellowship that God's people have together when they are together in relationship with God. And so you see, he's laying out the fact that eternal souls of our neighbors, the eternal souls of our loved ones, the eternal souls of our friends are dependent upon us protecting the gospel. And he's laying out here that the effectiveness of our Awana ministry or the effectiveness of our Sunday school or our effectiveness of our morning service, it is all dependent on us, on the gospel ministry, on us protecting the gospel itself. Because the moment it changes, you lose everything. One of the fundamental parts of the gospel is teaching that God provided us a way of salvation. God loved the world this way. You know it, right? That he sent his son into the world. And that wording is so important. God did not send Jesus into the world simply to occupy a space, but in fact to get into it. The Bible says he came and he put on flesh and he walked among us. 
Or maybe if you could wrap your mind around it this way, the second member of the Trinity, who for all of eternity before that moment was Spirit, just like the Father and the Holy Spirit, made a commitment and then put put on flesh. The second member puts on flesh, never to take it off again. Jesus becomes human. He dies human. He rises from the dead human. He ascends into heaven human. The second member of the Trinity will forever, for all of eternity, be human. So that he can bridge the gap between us and God. And we cannot move an inch from this position. Because of all the things we begin to lose. For example, Jesus was fully human. That means when he faced temptation, he faced it as a human. And when he had victory over temptation, he had victory as a human. What does that mean for you and me? It means that when we face temptation, we can use the same tools, the same taxes that he used to have victory over those temptations. Because he is human, the Bible tells us that he prays for the Father, or prays to the Father as our brother. He knows the weakness of our humanity. He becomes our advocate, the one who stands before the Father at all times. We begin to understand how important the gospel is for each and every one of us. And while, yes, there are going to be times where we need to grow in our understanding and And sometimes we have bad ideas simply because we're immature. But we cannot change the gospel. And we cannot change it because we're having a bad day. We cannot change it because some new and interesting teacher comes along. We cannot change it simply because we're in a season of struggling with feeling like our faith is dull and boring. The gospel isn't the only thing in our faith, but it is the most central, fundamental thing about our faith. And if we lose it, we have nothing. It all collapses. And you say, so what's the big deal? Why are we going to talk about docetism? Or why are we going to talk about Gnosticism? Or why are we bring up Platoic dualism? Because all of those things, just like they did 2,000 years ago, come back and they attack the gospel. And if we are not at the ready to understand what it is and is not, if we can't make the discernment between what is good and bad ideas about Jesus, we will leave the gospel vulnerable. So number one, far and away, most bad ideas about Jesus will come from some form of social pressure. I know you feel it. Many of you feel it when you go to work. You feel it when you go to school. You feel it when you're around some of your friends. You feel that social pressure to find some way to conform your Christianity to whatever is the movement of the day. But remind yourself that biblical Christianity reached billions of people because it is not based on social structures. It's not based on ethnic traditions. It's not based on geographical culture. It is based on universal forever truths. And so it is vastly important we do not bend this way or that way as social winds come and go. But also understand that every bad idea about Jesus is going to rob us of some type of joy. It includes the joy of having a healthy relationship with God, the joys of having personal relationships with one another. We have to battle or deal with these heresies because these bad ideas will destroy lives and they destroy churches. All bad, about, all bad ideas about Jesus will change the gospel. 
So something's more at stake here than our friendships with one another. Something's more at stake here than our, the, our church building here in Maxwell, Nebraska. We cannot give in to these kind of heresies like docetism or any of the other ones we'll talk about. We cannot minimize them as unimportant or boring. Why would we bring these kind of things up? Because the reality is our witness is at stake. The eternal souls of people we care about and love are at stake. And so, yes, we might, re- we might deal this, at some point or another with something you think, well, you know what, I don't understand why this is important at all. Pastor, why are we bringing these kind of things up? Why are we talking about things they were fighting over 1,800 years ago, 1,500 years ago, 1,000 years ago? Because surprise, surprise, many of them are still around. Many of them have made their way into your local Christian bookstore. Unfortunately, many of them have made their way onto the local Christian radio station. And I'm not saying you throw out the bookstores, and I'm not saying you throw out the local Christian radio station. What I'm saying is you need to be ready to put that wall around the gospel and say, you know what? That's a bad idea about Jesus. And I know the danger of the the robbing of the joy I can see that perhaps why you would want to think that way because of social pressure. But I cannot, I cannot allow the gospel to be changed. Let's pray. Father, and I pray and thank you for John and his letter and the reminder of the fully human, fully divine Jesus Christ. And while things like that are not a part normally of our daily thinking or our daily conversations, I know, Father, they are of utmost importance that we are able to discern what is truth and what is not. We are able to stand, Father, as social pressures and their winds go this way and that. We're able to stand, Father, and say, I will not lose my joy. And, Father, make a stand and say, we will not compromise the gospel. I pray this will be true about us in this church, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.